Um, it's, it's, uh, we're in the middle of our sermon series, Prophecy Revisited, and we've been looking at the, the themes of Scripture, the, the broader themes of Scripture that teach us something. Sometimes we get caught up in the smaller details and miss the greater lessons, and we've been looking at the greater lessons. Can you guys turn me down because I'm echoing like I'm in a cave? There we go. That's better. Thank you. So uh, we've been discussing the greater themes of Scripture and, and looking at our times and what they're teaching us. And as we've been going through this sermon series, some people over the last few weeks have said, you know, I've got some questions based on a few Scriptures here and there and understanding how I kind of relate to world governments and kingdoms and how we fit together and how we're supposed to respect them or not because they've been hearing me say things like, you know, really... Governments and kingdoms are man-made, and man is driven by selfishness, which was created by sin and Lucifer. And so essentially, man-made governments come from selfishness, sin, and Lucifer. And, but yet, the Bible says God raises up kings, so how do I relate? That's going to be our study today. We're going to answer some of those questions. So we're going to leave Daniel and Revelation just for one week and answer some of these questions that have come up. But, last week, just as a review, we studied the story of Cain and Abel. Remember that? And uh, we looked at the fact that Cain tried all he could to prove that he was the Savior. He lifted up that offering to the Lord. And he said, the ground was cursed. And see, I brought forth life from the cursed ground. Surely I can prove to you that I'm the Savior. And the Lord said, okay, well, if that's true, if you're the Messiah, if you're the chosen one, if you can reverse the curse, then your life will show it. Your life will bear it out. And the very next thing we read that he does is he kills his brother. And the ground, he brought forth life from the ground, and it says, your brother's blood cries out from the ground. So essentially, the lesson that we learn there is that the very thing that Cain used to prove that he could overturn the curse was ultimately the thing that judged him. Was ultimately the thing that proclaimed his judgment. And he gets sent out on his own. And this is a fantastic symbol of God's judgment. And the fact that what we try to hold up as proof that we can fix it, we've got it all under control, is the very thing that condemns us. And one of the things that we try to prove that human existence can continue is through governments and kingdoms, which is why the Bible spends so much time addressing those issues. But how do we relate to our leaders? How do we relate to governments and kings? So the title of our message today is Kingdoms, Governments, and Christians. Oh my! How do we relate? Well, the answer is it's complicated. It's complicated. Daniel had a complicated relationship with Babylon and Persia. Daniel was lifted up. He was, as you know, earlier in our series, we talked about Daniel. He was a Jew that was carried captive back to Babylon after Nebuchadnezzar sieged uh, Jerusalem. And Daniel eventually rises to second in power in the entire nation. Same with Joseph. And the thing was, is they had a complicated relationship. By the time Nebuchadnezzar's gone, Daniel is forgotten about, and Belshazzar uh, has to be reminded that Daniel's there. And when you get to Persia, the Medes and Persians, Daniel gets thrown into the lion's den. It's complicated, isn't it? 
It's a complicated relationship. Same with Joseph. Joseph had the same kind of position. Second in command in all of Egypt. And ultimately, he has this give and take, these non-negotiables in this relationship. And uh, I would say that multiple prophets had maybe even worse than what we would call a complicated relationship with kings and governments, didn't they? Half the time they were telling the kings that they were crooked and fallen and sinners and they need to get back to the Lord. Remember that? So it's complicated. How do we, though, relate? How do we relate? Well, let's go back to the beginning. Let's go to the Old Testament. Let's go to 1 Samuel chapter 8. 1 Samuel chapter 8. Prior to the story that we're about to read, uh, we find that God had sort of kept things together with His people through judges. And judges were leaders that rose that would kind of keep try to keep God's people on the straight and narrow. It often didn't work, and they'd end up falling back into bad habits, and they'd fall under oppression again, and then a judge would rise up and lead them out of that, and just to start the cycle all over again. Uh, but by the time we get to Samuel being an old man, Samuel says, you know, my sons can take over and pick up where I left off. But Israel was not, uh, they were not satisfied with that. So 1 Samuel chapter 8, beginning in, let's see, verse 4. This is what the Bible says. Then all the elders of Israel gathered together and came to Samuel at Ramah and said to him, Behold, you are old and your sons do not walk in your ways. Now appoint for us a king to judge us like all the nations. But the thing displeased Samuel when they said, Give us a king to judge us. And Samuel prayed to the Lord, and the Lord said to Samuel, Obey the voice of the Lord, or obey the voice of the people. Obey the voice of the people um, in all that they say to you, for they have not rejected you, but they have rejected me from being king over them. So to accept a king was to accept or reject, accept man and reject God. That's exactly right. You see that very clearly? Yes or no? Are you with me? God never wanted a king to lord over them. God wanted them to follow Him. Yes, they needed leaders to keep them on the straight and narrow and remind them of what uh, they should be doing and how they should be living, but God never wanted a king to lord and rule over them. And so when folks bring up questions like, well, what about when the Bible says God raises up kings and He takes down kings? That's actually in Daniel, and it's in Daniel chapter 2. And right in the middle of that explanation of the fall of Babylon, Medo-Persia, Greece, and Rome. And my, my question to uh, people would be, so God raises up kings. Does that mean that God raises up all kings? Does that mean that you know, just because Hitler was in power, the people should have followed him? Not at all. I mean, there have been some awful kings, awful kingdoms throughout the history of the world. And let me just say this, and I'm going to get into this a little bit more here in, in Romans chapter 13. It's usually people that have not ever had to live under oppression from a government that just think we should just obey the government no matter what they say. It's people that have never faced what it's like to live in a communist country. 
It's people that usually are white in America that don't have a problem just saying, well, we need to respect our leaders. We need to respect those in power. It's usually people that have never had to face any type of oppression that have no problem just trusting leadership. Are you with me? And so we need to be very careful with how we throw those verses around. Because this is what Samuel says to them about a king. So God says, you know, they've rejected me. Let's raise up a king. Now let me ask you this question. Did God have a hand in putting Saul in power? Yes or no? He did. Was it God's will really though? No, it wasn't. So we're going to find out the role of of what all this means here in just a minute, but I want to continue reading. Uh, Verse 10 says this, So Samuel told all the words of the Lord to the people who were asking for a king from him. He said, These will be the ways of the king who will reign over you. So he's saying, Okay, God's going to give you a king, but you should know that this is what it's going to be like when you have a king. He said, these will be the ways of the king who will reign over you. He will take your sons and appoint them to his chariots and to be his horsemen and to run before his chariots, meaning they're going to have to fight for him and they'll be losing their lives. He will appoint for himself commanders of thousands and commanders of fifties and some, of, some to, his pl- to plow his grounds and to reap his harvest, to make his implements of war and to and the equipment of his chariots. He will take your daughters to be perfumers and cooks and bakers. He will take the best of your fields and your vineyards and your olive orchards and give them to his servants. He will take the tenth of your grain and your vineyards and give it to the officers and to his servants. He will take your male servants, your female servants, the best of your young men and your donkeys and put them to his work. He will take the tenth of your flocks and you shall be his slaves." And in that day you will cry out because of your king whom you have chosen for yourselves, but the Lord will not answer you in that day. Whoo! That's pretty heavy, isn't it? That's pretty heavy stuff. He's not just talking about Saul. And he's not even necessarily talking about openly wicked kings. He's saying, people, if you set up this system for yourselves, this is how it has to work. This is how it is going to work. If, if you don't let God be your governor, be your king, be your monarch, and only follow His will, you are setting up a human system, and that human system will ultimately have to cost you all of these things in order to make it work. And what did they say? Well, we want it anyway. We want it anyway. They, I don't know if they knew what they were really saying. So, what we have to understand is that human-designed government at its core is essentially designed to allow humanity to survive. But the problem is it's based on humanity and not God. Thus, the systems that humanity put in place are at their heart selfish. No matter what form of government you come up with, any man-made government at its core is selfish. And my friends, this is exactly why some people you know, have, have uh, talked about Desmond Doss, the famous conscientious objector over the years and really revered him. And there was a time where non-combatancy in the Seventh-day Adventist church were a, a major thing. Adventists were non-combatants. 
And usually we put the emphasis on um, not killing and not taking life, which is admirable and, and, and biblical. But at the same time, what we have to understand is that we never know what is happening behind the scenes in government. We never know what the true motives of people are from either party. We don't know. We don't know what decisions have been made. A perfect example of this is um, as, as the Vietnam War has been studied and studied and looked into and documents have been looked into. I don't want to get into this too much to get too political. But it was an absolute fear from the world that communism was going to take over the entire world if the United States did not take that tiny little part of the world in Vietnam. That was the key that held back the whole world from communism. And so it was actually an over-sensitive fear that started with JFK that put too much of an emphasis on that part of the world that got us into that mess. And we could get more and more into, into the history of it. But what we have to understand is that one of the reasons that Seventh-day Adventists have been non-combatant is not just because we believe in not taking life. It's also because we say we, don't really, we can't really support what's behind human governments. We don't really know what the intentions are and what's really happening. How do we support a just war? Because we don't know what a just war is. And so in war, if we're called to be a part of the military, we won't be there to take life. We will be there to save life. Because human governments are too complicated and too selfish for us to be the judge. And this is an entirely different sermon series that we could be getting into, but what is a just war? Can you take life in, in a just way, biblically and ethically? Boy, I'm really popping and snapping here today, aren't I? Let's try that instead. So, we have Romans 13. It's a very famous passage of Scripture about respecting the government. Romans chapter 13 and uh, we're going to begin in verse 1. Romans 13, 1. Let every person be subject to governing authorities, for there is no authority except from God. And those that exist have been instituted by God. Therefore, whoever resists the authorities resists what God has appointed. And those, who's resi those who resist will incur judgment. For rulers are not a terror to good conduct, but to bad. Would you have no fear of the one who is in authority? Then do what is good, and you will receive his approval. For he is God's servant for your good. Oh, come on, Paul. You're confusing things. Wow, yeah, as usual, Paul's confusing things. I mean, we just heard from Samuel what would happen when humans take over running things. And now Paul is asking us to just submit. But then we look into this a little bit further. And there's a couple things that we need to recognize and understand. Number one is that even in Samuel's time, mankind chose to have man rule over him. Did, did you see that with Samuel? Yes or no? Mankind chose the king, right? So mankind chose the king to rule over them. And so God is saying, through government, I am trying to work out my best way 
to allow human society to function safely. And that's what we find throughout the Bible, is that even though it's not God's ideal, or it wouldn't be God's choice, God tries to work through governments to try and keep society functioning at a fairly good pace. Are you with me? The problem is, humans are running it. And we don't do a very good job of it. God gives us free will. And so, with free will, uh, even though we, God has set up these governments in order to have humanity function at a fairly successful rate, humans get in the way and we mess it up. Like, all men are created equal, unless you're from Africa. Or you were born here. <laughs> it was, all men are created equal as long as you're from Europe. That's essentially what we said. And so, man, mankind got in the way. And so, yes, but there's a, a second part to what Paul's saying here in Romans. You see, if we as Christians, and if that early church especially was absolutely against the government in every way and fought against the government in every way, what would be the result on the church? Remember, Paul is in Rome. And Paul is actually dealing with Caligula and Nero in history. Now Caligula, I don't know how many people know about Caligula. Caligula was crazy. Like, certifiably crazy. He waged war against Poseidon. Poseidon was the god of the sea. And uh, he decided that he was going to actually send out his army. This is historical fact. He sent out his army with swords and spears and things to wade into the ocean, and they were to stab the waves and to slash at it with their swords. And the spoils of their victory would be shells that they get and bring home in, in large uh, cases. That's Caligula. He's crazy. Can you imagine living in Rome under those conditions? And that's why the church was persecuted. Nero too. Nero was half crazy and by the end of his life was really crazy and some even blame him for burning down Rome. I mean, crazy. And can you imagine them being in, in, in rule? So you have Caligula who's nuts and Paul's saying, hey, you know, obey him. And the Christian church is going, are you kidding me? Here's what Paul's concern was. If you stand in anarchy against the government, the government is going to kill you. You following me? The church will be destroyed if you stand in stark opposition to the government. So you have to find ways to submit and get along and work with the government that you're under. Does that make sense to you, yes or no? And so... Paul's concerns, and, and actually throughout his writing, some of the more confusing passages about gender and ministry and roles, those are actually designed after Roman law. Roman law was the, the, the paterfamilias, if you've ever heard that term before, but it was about the patriarchal father or grandfather. And that grandfather had to be a landowner, and he had to hand the land down, and you had to own land in order to be able to vote and have have a place and so his writings really tell the church follow paterfamilias follow the the order of things in the roman government because if you do you will have a greater standing they won't be able to take your property away from you they won't be able to lord over you and, and just 
get rid of you because under Roman law, if you follow this way, you will be protected. And that's what Paul's emphasis here is, find a way to be submissive and cooperative with the government in a way that allows you to flourish while not compromising. Are you with me? And this is, isn't this exactly what Daniel and Joseph did? If you think back to their story, Daniel learned the ways of Babylon. Daniel helped Babylon flourish, didn't he? But he had some non-negotiables. There was a line that he wouldn't cross. He was going to worship the way he wanted to worship, the way he was impressed to worship. He was going to follow God and he was going to live his life the way that he saw as God was asking him to. The same with Joseph. And Joseph helped Egypt flourish. And Pharaoh recognized it. And so that's the relationship really that, that Christians need to have with kings and government. Yes, we live in this, in, in this country, but we need to recognize, and this is where so many of our friends and Christians and in our church, outside of our church, have fallen under. Automatically assuming that one form of government or another, or one party or another, automatically is the holy and good one. Biblically, what we need to understand is, no human government or party is the good one. Because it is run by human beings, and human beings are selfish and sinful and prideful. But what we are called to do as Christians is to get along with the government. But we are not of the government. And that's where the, the line has been getting muddled in a lot of our lives. It's almost as if we are of the Republicans or we are of the Democrats. No, we're neither one. We're of the kingdom of God. And so that is really the role. And I want you to look at verse 3 in Romans chapter 13. It says, For rulers are not a terror to good conduct, but to bad. So in other words, he's saying no matter how bad the emperor is, if you follow the laws, you'll be safe for the most part. Now again, this is Paul speaking in the Roman government. Are you following me? This is Paul speaking in his context. Because there have been people throughout history that have followed the law, but yet still been abused and snuffed out and killed and enslaved. You following me? So, I'm just going to... Can I be straight with you? Can I be straight with you? White Americans find it very easy to just go... Oh yeah, follow the government. Give your allegiance to the president. Pledge allegiance to the flag. Because for us, that's been easy. We haven't been, we haven't faced what a lot of our friends of color and brothers and sisters of color have faced. So we find it really easy to take this verse and just say, well, all of you need to do this. Why should you even be questioning the government? Why should you be, be stretching those limits? Why should you be asking those questions and, and making those stands? Because we, as white people, have a hard time relating to anything else. But if you've never faced the oppression that other people have, it's easy to say that. So we can't take Romans 13 to mean that you just give allegiance to leadership 
and just bl- blindly follow leadership that are openly oppressing and bringing hatred and, 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 and all kinds of other sorts of prejudice. Which is why we as Christians always have to step outside of party lines. We have to be cognizant of the fact that I can't identify with one or the other because they're man-made and I have to stand for the principles of the kingdom of God. And so he says, we as kingdom dwellers need to recognize that in general, hopefully the idea is that government is designed in order to keep humanity safe. So submit to leadership in general. But at the same time, you also need to work within the confines of the country that you've been placed in or the government that you've been placed in for the betterment of the church. The church can't be seen as something that's against the government. Unless, unless, as Peter says, it goes against the law of God. So that's sort of Romans 13 in a nutshell. And 1 Timothy 2.2 echoes this very same thing. So I want to take you there. I want to show you some, most of these verses. Uh, 1 Timothy 2.2. 2. It says this. 1 Timothy, I'll start in verse 1. First of all, then, I urge that supplications, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgivings be made for all people, for kings and all who are in high positions, that we may lead a peaceful and quiet life, godly and dignified in every way. This is good and is pleasing to the sight of God our Savior. That doesn't mean that you see the leader as a godly person. Are you okay with me saying that? Just because you're praying for that person doesn't mean you automatically say, oh, well, God has put that person there and I must respect and honor them. No, 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 no. It's saying, this is the country, this is the place where I have been placed and where I live, and I want that leader to make good decisions. Because as the leader makes good decisions, society thrives and the church can thrive right with it. Are you with me? That leader has free will. And we want God to be part of the choices of the free will of that leader. That's why we pray for our leaders. We don't pray for our leaders as if God has put them on a pedestal as sitting in a more holy position than anyone else. When we think of it that way, we are on extremely dangerous ground. Thinking that because they're the president or because they're the king, they have official anointing from the Lord. We don't find that anywhere. We need to be very careful with that mindset. So we pray for them so that they may lead us into peace. And we may find harmony with the peace that they institute. Are you with me? No matter how wicked or how evil they get, we pray that they would lead their nation into peace. But that does not mean that we pray as if they are holy or placed there and sanctified. Because, ultimately, putting a king in position was not God's choice, it was man's choice. But again, Paul and Peter are saying these things under Caligula and Nero. (laughs) I mean, pick your most recent bad leader that you can think of, Caligula and Nero were way worse. I mean, they're horrible. Um, None of us knows 
what's happening behind the scenes in government. We don't know what is in the heads and motives of leaders, but we do know the direction of the world. Go with me to Ephesians chapter 2. Ephesians chapter 2. We do know what's happening in the world. Ephesians chapter 2, we're going to begin in verse 1. Ephesians 2, 1. It says, And you were dead in your trespasses and sins. This is Paul addressing the church. In which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. All right, so let me, let's look at verse 2 again. In which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. So who is this talking about? Satan, that's exactly right. He is the prince of the power of the air, and the world follows him. Are we okay with that, yes or no? So the trend of the world is to follow Satan. And that's why John, uh, in 1 John, says the world is passing away. It's dying. We've been talking about that week after week in our series here. That when sin entered the world, the earth was given an expiration date. It can only last just so long. And I believe that includes nature and everything, and especially man-directed systems of government. They have an expiration date. They can only just last so long. And because they're following the, the prince of the power of the air. Now, what's really interesting here? In verse 2, that word course, if you look up the word in the Greek, uh, it actually... It, it could be used as almost like a, a sailing term. Almost like the air behind the sails. So it, it, the course, you know, the winds when you're sailing set your course. And this was a term that would have been familiar to Paul and most people in those days. So you follow where the wind goes when you're sailing. Isn't that true? And that's what Paul is saying here. And, and notice he refers to Satan as the prince of the power of the air. And he's saying, look, society in this world are being blown by the wind of Lucifer. And the world is following that course. He is blowing the direction of the world. And we have to really constantly be reminding ourselves of that and saying, okay, where do I as a believer, where do I as a, as a citizen of the kingdom of God, where do I fit in now that I know that knowledge? Now that I'm aware of that? How do I live and how do I relate to governments and what's happening in this world knowing who's blowing the sails of society in the world? Knowing who's blowing the sails of government and kings and kingdoms. 1 John 5.19 states that the whole world lies in the power of, what does it say? The evil one. So let me ask you a question. Who's in charge of government? Satan is. Because it's man-made. Now, we believe that all things work together for good for those that love God and are called according to His purpose. 
We believe that, don't we? So what that's saying is that God can use Satan's schemes against him. So that's why, even though we know that powers are driven by selfishness, and selfishness is driven by Lucifer, we still can find peace in this world, and peace in whatever government that we find ourselves, because all things work together for good. God ultimately is in control. Are you with me? But we cannot find ourselves identifying with the politics of the world. We can only find ourselves identifying with the politics of heaven and God's kingdom. I got two more verses for you, and then we're going to be done. Let's go to 1 Peter chapter 2 and verse 13. 1 Peter chapter 2 and verse 13. And, and this is why you know, I've had, had such a great concern for some of our friends um, that are getting so sucked into the political stuff. Oh, and by the way, I have to, I have to bring this up. I can't not bring this up. Right now, uh, there's having this big convention, CPAC. Have you seen this? Anybody see what they wheeled in there yesterday? A golden statue of Donald Trump. And I, bells are going off. Daniel 3. It's a golden statue. It's crazy. It's crazy. And, and our friends, brothers, our, our, our Christian friends are so getting sucked into the politics of the world. And, and totally overlooking the biblical ramifications of all of this nonsense that's happening in our government. And they're getting sucked in and got, we will be deceived by this stuff. We cannot allow ourselves to get getting sucked into this stuff because it is Daniel and Revelation happening right now. It's happening right before our eyes. 1 Peter 2.13 be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether it be the emperor as supreme or the governors as sent by him to punish those who do evil and to praise those who do good. For this is the will of God, that by doing good you should be put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. That's the key verse. Live as those who are free, not using your freedom as a cover-up for what? evil, but living as servants of God. Those last two verses should be the way that we understand how we relate to earthly governments. He's saying don't use your faith as an excuse to live as an anarchist. Don't use your faith as an excuse to be an anti-government, anti-this, anti-that, because God is working all things together for good. He has this government in place. And right now, that is the, the bandages and duct tape and glue that's holding society from totally falling apart at the moment. So find ways to live at peace. Because in Paul's day, in Peter's day, you have to remember where they were coming from. Most of the Jews wanted a Messiah that would deliver them from the Romans through insurrection. Remember that? That's what they were hoping for. That's what they were looking for. So the Roman government in Peter's time, 
That's what they were expecting at some point because there had been uprising after uprising after uprising. And so um, <laughs> when, when we see Peter saying that, he's saying, look, the government is waiting for you to rise up in insurrection. Don't do it. Prove to them that you can live peacefully in their government. Don't use it as an excuse to act in evil ways. And we, again, we look at the lessons from Daniel and Joseph. Paul's main goal is that the church might flourish. Peter's main goal is that the church might flourish. And if the church stands in stark contrast to the government about all things, again, we follow God no matter what. We obey God's will and God's law no matter what. And if that means standing against the government at any time, we'll do it. But while we aren't in that state, while we're not living under those conditions, we seek to live in peace with our government. We seek to live in peace with all men. We support those in leadership because that's who we've got. And we try to live in peace and harmony as much as possible so that we can allow the church to flourish. I want to close with this, with this text. It's in Mark chapter 12. Mark chapter 12, because somebody brought this up. What about that, that situation where Jesus says, render unto Caesar what is Caesar, and under God what is God? What is that all about? I want to end this way. Because it comes back to who we belong to. Who do you belong to? Do you belong to the Republican Party? Do you belong to the Democratic Party? Do you belong to the United States of America? Who do you belong to? Who do you identify with? Mark chapter 12, beginning in verse 13. This is what Scripture says. And they sent to him some of the Pharisees, to Jesus, some of the Pharisees of the Herodians, to trap him in his talk. And they came and said to him, Teacher, we know that you are true and do not care about anyone's opinion. For you are not swayed by appearances. But truly, teach the way of God. Is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? So they think they've got him here. They think he's going to say, no, you shouldn't pay taxes to Caesar because I'm the king. See, they were waiting for him. Again, their mindset was, this guy is going to lead an insurrection. He believes he's the Messiah. So when we ask him if he's going to pay taxes to Caesar, he's going to say, no, of course not. You should pay your taxes to me. But if he says pay them to Caesar, it would be like saying Caesar's in charge and not me. You see the trap they had him in? To pay taxes to Caesar would be to say that he wasn't the Messiah. To say pay taxes to me would be to say I don't follow Caesar. So either the Roman government was going to get him or he was going to condemn himself as not being the Messiah. They thought they had him in a trap. So he goes on, verse 15. But knowing their hypocrisy, he said to them, Why are you putting me to the test? Bring me a denarius. Let me look at it. They brought one, and he said to them, Whose likeness and inscription is is this? They said to him, Caesar's. Jesus said to them, Render unto Caesar the things that are Caesar's, and to God the things that are God's. And he marveled at them. Now, here's the incredible thing. Can you all put that picture up there for me? There is, this is a picture of a Roman denarius. And this is the coin that they would have looked at when asking Jesus this question. Now, that is Caesar's face. Okay? 
That's Caesar's face. And by the way, denarius was a day's wage. That's day's wages for a laborer. And around Caesar's face is an inscription that reads, Caesar, son of God. What, what many Christians don't know is that because of all the things that Julius Caesar did and accomplished, they referred to him as truly God. And so Caesar's sons were referred to as son of God. And so this is the amazing thing. They give him a coin. They say, should we pay taxes? And he said, whose face is on that coin? Well, Caesar's. It bears his image. It reflects a government set up by him. Right? So give it to him. But do you know what he's also implying? Whatever, whatever image something bears, they belong to that thing, or that one. So the coin belongs to Caesar because it has Caesar's image on it. And do you know what Jesus is implying? Whose image do you have on you? You bear God's image. You belong to him. Render unto Caesar the coins of the world, but render unto God yourself. And this, my friends, is the crux of what we need to understand. We do not give our allegiance to any political party, any politician, any government or any king. We only do it out of peace for the betterment of the church and for living as best we can in peace with our fellow man. We do not bear the image of the United States of America. We do not bear the image of the Republican Party or the Democratic Party. We bear the image of God. We are His. And we best not forget that. And too many of us have. And what we've ended up doing, I'm just going to be frank with you, the hatred that has come out of politics is not of God. If you have fallen into the same rhetoric that our former president was using, you have been following the wrong person. It has to stop. And by the way, the rhetoric can go the other way too, because right now there's a bill that's being suggested that really seriously will cause problems for religious liberty. It goes both ways. We do not identify with either one. We can't. We can't. We can't. Because God's image is on us. We belong to his kingdom. We are his. We live, we live in peace with fellow man. We live in harmony with our government as much as possible. We support our country, and we can be happy and proud that we live here, but ultimately, we do not belong to it. We belong to the kingdom of God. Let's pray. Father, thank you that we bear your image. And Lord, it's so very easy to find ourselves identifying with uh, the wrong things, finding ourselves in the wrong things, mixed up in the wrong things.
But Lord, we realize today again that we need to render unto you what is yours. We have your face on us, and so we belong to you. May we find ourselves only, Lord, ultimately being um, followers of your kingdom, citizens of your kingdom. May we see, Lord, the, the kingdom of God lived out through us. May we be uncomfortable with earthly politics. May we be uncomfortable with the rhetoric we hear coming out of Washington from both parties. May it set a sense of us that we, need, we long for the peace of heaven. May we realize that the systems of this world were set up by man and not by you. So Lord, may we feel like aliens and sojourners in this land, working to take people home with us. May that be our ultimate goal, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.